The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on Johnny Diesel and the Injectors and their hit song, Crying Shame. Our special guest was the band's frontman, guitarist and songwriter, Diesel. When Johnny Diesel and the Injectors first burst onto the Australian music scene, they took the country by storm. Their hard-rocking self-titled debut album would go on to become the highest-selling album in 1989. On the back of this album, the band would also win two Air Awards. At the time, it became the highest-selling debut album ever released by an Australian band. The record included four hit singles, with three of these songs reaching the top ten on the charts. While the Perth band was a band in every sense of the word, the group's focal point was mainly on the frontman and guitarist Mark Lazotte, a.k.a. Johnny Diesel, a.k.a. Diesel. The whole band played their part in the success they would go on to achieve. However, with his Hollywood good looks and obvious star qualities as a musician, Johnny Diesel would be the one who spent the most time in the spotlight. Diesel was born in the American state of Massachusetts. His parents both grew up in the same town. However, it took some intervention from Diesel's grandmother before his parents would actually meet for the first time. My mum and dad both came from New Bedford, Massachusetts, and um, they grew up around, you know, blocks away from each other and didn't know each other until my mother was looking after her future mother-in-law in the hospital and, um, yeah, talking to her a lot. And she said, oh, I've got a son, you know, he's in the Navy. I'd love you to meet him. And, and that's what happened. And so, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Um, but they, they were from the same area, but they just didn't know each other. Diesel's parents, Henry and Teresa, decided to immigrate from the USA, arriving down under in November 1971. America's loss certainly turned out to be Australia's gain. We, we still don't really, really know to this day why they decided Australia or, or what even got into their heads, but I think it was one of those conversations that they had, like laying in bed one night, like, you know, do you want to do something different? Let's do something, you know, like... Um, they, they, cho- they couldn't have chosen a further away place, really. Um, I think Hawaii might have been uh, an option for a little bit. Obviously, it's still a state of America, so that was kind of attractive. But in the end, it just got further and further and further. And, and yeah, until they were like across the Pacific Ocean. And we had to cross America first, of course, which we did. In a, my dad bought a combi, a uh, Volkswagen combi bus, and piled us all in. And suitcases on the roof and the whole thing. And then got us over to uh, 
San Francisco, which is where we used to fly out of the, back then. And, you know, it involved flying to Hawaii, of course, and then Hawaii to Sydney. That was how you got to, to, to Australia back then. Um, yeah, and it, all very exciting for a six-year-old, you know, very exciting stuff. The camp out in western suburbs where all the immigrants would be sent, um, you know, it was like the immigrant camp where you had to stay for six weeks and, and made sure you didn't have any, you know, terrible diseases or whatever. And <laughs> it was kind of like quarantine camp. But, um, yeah, stupid hot. It was. It was January and it was one of those like crazy hot Sydney summers, just really, really hot. I mean, hot for people like us who, you know, summers in, in East Coast of America are, are quite pleasant. You know, let's just say they're pleasant uh, and warm, yes, but like not like this kind of heat. It's like it was heat that we'd never experienced ever before. It was like hit you between the eyes kind of heat. But, you you know, you acclimatize and uh, we survived that, that six weeks in there. Um, the food was awful. Uh, you know, everything smelt like lamb fat, like all the soap and everything, and the sheets and the towels all smelt like lamb, you know, to us, because a lot of the soaps were made from lamb fat back then, and especially in those sort of institutions, it would have been like the real institutional kind of soap that they were using. So for us Americans to come over, it was like, whoa, every, why does everything smell like sheep? You know, it really, really did. Um, big spiders on the wall that we'd never seen. Huntsman, you know, of course now, like, I kind of see a huntsman in my house and I'm like, oh, hello, you know, like kind of see them as a good omen. But back then it was the most terrifying thing you've ever seen in your life. Like I didn't think they made spiders that big, you know, only in dreams and cartoons. But yeah, welcome to Australia. Diesel starting music wasn't necessarily the stuff of rock and roll dreams, although it would explain the diverse range of styles and approaches to his music that he would explore throughout his career. To date, he has released 15 studio albums. When my cello kind of started, because I picked up cello in Chandler, Arizona, um, by totally a freak of nature, the local school, which was a public school, they had a string program and very unusual, but they did have a string program. So I, I hooked into it, got the cello going. It was a school, um, they, they gave me a cello, like to borrow it, lend me one, I should say. And um, when we got back to Australia, my dad bought me a cello and, and I kept going with the Western Australian Symphony Orchestra in, in, in Perth and private lessons on the weekend and stuff. But yeah, by the age of like 13, there was a friend that lived across the road in the house that we were renting at the time in, in, um, in the suburbs of, of Perth called Inalu. While musically his first love was the cello, the allure of the guitar would prove to be too strong to ignore. I was still doing the tuition and my father was kicking in the bucks for that. And so there was a, they were a little bit bummed when I said, look, I want to you know play guitar because this friend across the road had a nylon string guitar and I'd like keep stealing it all the time and and funny enough in my house with seven kids there was a lot of instruments my dad well one of his favorite hobbies was to go and spend money in music shops and buy all kinds of things because he was a sax player but he never brought home a, like a guitar for me anyway <laughs> and um it was it was kind of a when I look back at it it's it's kind of mind-blowing to think the world's technically the most popular instrument in the world that just didn't make it into our house for some reason as a multi-instrumentalist, Diesel has been able to reinvent himself throughout his career, keeping his music sounding fresh and interesting to his fans and also to himself. Yeah, I'm lucky though, I guess, maybe not having the guitar straight away, it led me to a lot of other things like the cello and the bass, which is like freaky because as I say that, I'm looking at a cello and a bass, a double bass that are on the floor right now because I've been recording and I'm like looking at them, hello. Um, 
but yeah, I, I have all these other sort of things that feel familiar and feel, you know, that I feel a lot of affinity for, um, as much as I do for the guitar really, the, but the guitar has, has been an incredible, you know, um, let's just say when I've got a song, you know, stirring in my head, it's usually the guitar I go and grab. <laughs> so, you know, it's been the, it's been the hobby, the horse for me to get on for, for my songwriting in a big way and a great, you know, tool to have on stage, you know, it's like, I just feel like when I've got my guitar and I'm singing, that's, that's it. That's like, I'm complete. You know what I mean? Diesel first came to notice as a member of the Innocent Bystanders. Innocent Bystanders. That was like, um, so I started like dropping the cello and picking up. I got a guitar finally for Christmas. My brother and sister put some money in for me. And I started looking through the Sunday Times as you as that was really the way of meeting people. The, the the Sunday paper that had the wanted ads in the back, and you'd sort of scroll through and finally get to the little section that said wanted singer or guitar player or whatever. And I I saw this wanted thing, and it was for um you know a covers band or whatever. And so I went down and and I in the process through those wanted ads, I'd met this other guy who was just a cool dude. I thought who didn't have a band really. He just kind of finished a band, but he was looking to start something else. He was about 21. I was like 13 or 14. So there's a bit of an age gap there, but he kind of took me in and, and, you know, and he wasn't sort of, you know, put off by the the fact that I was so young because I had a lot of knowledge of music and so did he. And so we just kind of became like, you know, mentor, like mentors, but he was mentoring me. Probably I was mentoring him, but um, yeah, he was a bit of a lone wolf and he, and his name is Brett Keezer, and he was a great songwriter. Still, probably is if he's still writing. And he just really kind of, kind of got things going because I, I got in this other band. He, and he came. He was like, "Can I come to your rehearsal?" And I was like, "Yeah, come down and you know check us out, whatever." And it was literally like the first rehearsal that he came to, and he waited till the singers. There was two of them had kind of left, and he just sort of casually like kind of said, hey, let's have a jam with the other guys that were still there, and the bass player and the drummer and the keyboard player and me. And it was almost like kind of controlled sort of experiment or like mutiny or some kind of takeover, but that's pretty much what it was. And then once once they heard him and sort of felt the energy and they were like, oh, man, we got to get him. Like, So he basically was like, okay, you can see that there was a decent band there and, and he, he already had a lot of faith in me and he just basically just took over the band. <laughs> And the other people just got like, sorry, we don't need you anymore. And so that was the first version of Innocent Bystanders, which is pretty funny. I think there's a lot of stories about that, that things that happen in rehearsal rooms where someone comes in and just like takes over, you know, and suddenly the band's like reformed and remade in, 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 in that instant. Innocent Bystanders were one of Perth's top live bands. They recorded a single, Lebanon, on the AIB label.
While making some headway as a band, the original Innocent Bystanders imploded, and it turned out to be the birth of Johnny Diesel and the Injectors. Well, yeah, there were three members that were in that band, and funny enough, ironically, just how that band formed was from, you know, something getting broken and then being remade. Uh, Johnny Diesel and the Injectors was from me being fired from that band. (laughs) Basically, I, I got, you know, it wasn't like you're fired, but it was kind of in a roundabout way um, after a show that we just did, he came out and he just said, like, that's it, I'm done. Like, you're too loud. Um, and I was, okay, you know, sorry. You know, no, no, that's it, I'm finished. And I was like, whoa, okay. Um, but I think it was, you know, I think he was doing me a favor and in, in a roundabout way he was going, like, it's time for you to do your own thing, you know. And I probably was too loud and I probably was just being a, an idiot that night. I don't know. I can't remember. But <laughs> I do like playing loud. By that age, I was like 18, so I'd been playing for a few years then, and I was starting to maybe was feeling a bit like a we was in a, in a little bit of a cul-de-sac. We'd done some cool things. We'd crossed the Nullarbor and worked with a couple of great producers, um, Charles Fisher and Peter Walker, and made some singles. And one of them went, you know, to number one on the independent charts. You know, it was like wow, you know. But then the reality still still sits in. It's like well, we're still like sitting in Perth, kind of, and back then. There was no internet to sort of like get your music kind of, you know, pollinating anywhere else. You were like stuck on the other side of that desert. It really felt like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, for the next couple of years, I, when I put together the injectors, it was, you know, it was basically after the, the, the implosion of that band. And then the next morning they all got on the phone and said, hey, we want to come with you. Let's start another band. I was really? Okay, yeah. It was one of those. I didn't just like assume that they were all going to, want to not keep on going with with the singer-songwriter that was already in the band. But that was the impetus, you know, for me to kind of write more songs straight away. Mark Lazotte is known far and wide by his single-word stage name, Diesel. Like fellow one-namers such as Prince, Madonna and Sting, he has made the moniker his own. Although I doubt if any of those other stars mentioned have a more interesting story as to how they originally got their name. We played for about three months without a name. That was the thing. We were just playing every Tuesday night at this little bar. And then the lovely lady that used to book the room, um, you know, she was kind of in charge of the music of the club and stuff. She was like the, the promotions and the booking person. And she said, you know, like, you guys, you know, I really want to help you out. You're great musos, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, what? I want to put an ad in the paper, but, like, I don't want to just put your names, you know, like, that's just lame. Um, you know, do you have a name? What do you call them? And I, I'm, and it actually didn't even like we. I guess from being in the other band and stuff, we were reluct- we were a bit reluctant to start another band to start with. We just wanted to play, you know. So I'd heard that day, like earlier, a friend of ours, Steve, was over at the house because I I was sharing a house with the bass player at the time, and you know his name's lit- actually John, you know, and his partner Jan at the time, you know, they would just found out that she was pregnant again. And so uh, this friend of ours, Steve. Um, said, oh, little Johnny Diesel and his little injectors, you know, his family is growing, you know, into a family of little injectors. And, you know, of course, it's all referenced to, to truck engines and everything. And, and I thought, oh, that's cute, you know. Because um, his name is John Delzell, you know, so that's where he got the diesel from. It wasn't just like something out of his head. So I thought, oh, that's funny. And I, so when she called back later, I said, yeah, I do have a name. I thought, we'll put it in the paper, you know. I kept it to myself. I didn't tell her that it was a joke. I just said, yeah, we've got a name. And she was like, oh, okay, and put it in. And of course, it came in the paper, and we all laughed, ah, ha, ha, you know. And then, but the laugh quickly turned on me because, you know, in those weeks after that, I think it was probably the next week actually, with some 
biker dude, you know, yelled out, hey, Johnny, you know, at the stage. And I looked at our bass player, Johnny, and he was he just kind of smoked and looked at me and went, no, 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 he's pointing at you, man. He thinks it's you. And I went, oh, shit. Yeah, like, of course he does. I'm in the middle of the stage, you know, singing, you know, so of course he's going to think it's me. It's a bit like, you know, Spencer Davis group, you know, with um, Steve Winwood. He was the singer, but Spencer Davis was actually the bass player in that band. And I always, I always thought Spencer Davis was the singer, but, you know, it's one of those. But except, yeah, it's a totally fictitious name. But so that's how I got stuck with it. <laughs> Johnny Diesel and the Injectors packed up and headed east to Sydney. When they left Western Australia and crossed the Nullarbor, Little did they know that their first gig in Sydney would be performed to an audience made up almost exclusively of Oz rock and roll royalty. The list of onlookers included members of In Excess, The Angels and Midnight Oil. Diesel's future brother-in-law, Jimmy Barnes, was also another famous face in the crowd. Yeah, I mean, look, that, I think we have our manager at the time who wasn't really officially our manager, but he was acting as that and certainly had a lot of, to put a lot of faith on the line. Um, was Brent Eccles, and he, you know, he knew all these people through either through the Triple M connection that he had doing the homegrown show at the time, or being the drummer in the Angels, and also being a Kiwi who was, you know, quite well known back over the ditch. Um, yeah, just a networker, as they say, and he, yeah, he kind of corralled all these people down. I guess he probably don't know what he told them. It's like, come down, you'll see this band. You know, they're, they're pretty good. He would, he wouldn't have like oversold it. Because he's too like he's pretty low key like that, but he would have said whatever he had to say to kind of make them interested enough to come down. Um, who knows? He might have just said, "Hey, come down, free beers." <laughs> um, it's, but um, yeah, it was it was pretty freaky for us. It was like, wow, there's only two punters, actual as we call them, you know, like people who are not in the music industry. There were there were two guys there. I may never forget that night. Just young surfy sort of northern shore northern beach sort of guys and they they kind of didn't really recognize they weren't paying too much attention but at some point they tweaked to who was in the room and they were you could see they were like what is going on here and they were just standing there with their cheap beers you know because this place had uh it was one of those uh 16 foot skiff clubs that has like the the affordable drinks you know on a tuesday night half price beers and so they they got they definitely got their money's worth that night rub shoulders with rock royalty and see this band that had just crossed the Nullarbor, still with red dust in the, on their gear. <laughs> when released, the Johnny Diesel and the Injectors' self-titled debut album would go on to be regarded as an Aussie classic of the late 1980s. Whilst this episode is on crying shame, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to take a quick listen to some of the other hit tunes on the record. The band's debut single was Don't Need Love, with the song reaching number eight in January 1989. Yeah, I know. 
Don't Need Love might have announced the band's arrival. However, Johnny Diesel and the Injectors proved their success was no fluke, with their second single, Soul Revival, going to number nine on the Aria charts. You left me in the cool. Crying Shame was the band's third single, with the band releasing a fourth single off the album, Looking for Love. The song made the charts, but it wasn't as successful as the three previous singles. One reason it didn't sell as many copies was the success of the album. The LP would reach the number two spot and stay on the album charts for almost a year, eventually going four times platinum and selling over 300,000 copies. So when Looking for Love was released in August 89, most fans already owned a copy of the song via the album. While it might not have set the single charts alight, Looking for Love was a huge radio hit and has remained a fan favourite.
here's Diesel talking about the creation of Crying Shame and how the song came about. Well, I mean, that was that was just a riff that I had um, floating around, which it was like a riff without a home sort of thing. And I remember playing it in rehearsals, um, and uh, it just got kicked around. It was one of, with me anyway, and I don't think anyone was really nosing it too much. It was just like something that I was playing with, and it had like a real kind of reggae sort of kind of rock kind of you know like a stonesy kind of when they when like 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 when the stones play like reggae you know that kind of vibe and um yeah i just thought that's something i don't know what and then one month one morning i woke up after a very very late night and uh i think yeah i I, suddenly the rest of another piece came like a, a refrain or something and then it was like okay i've got three bits now or something and and then I probably at that point went into the rehearsal room or was somewhere with the band, maybe at a sound check. I, I really can't remember the, the moment we tried to put that song together. I wish I could. So much was happening like at once in those days, but uh, so much and so little. Crying Shame may have had its birth in Australia. However, it was when the band was recording in Memphis with famed American producer Terry Menning that the song really started to take shape. Actually, I'd love. I'd actually be really interested to hear. I probably got it somewhere on a cassette or something, but like a really early version of that song before we went to Memphis. Um, like I remember that was out of a lot of the songs that our producer Terry Manning got his hands over um, when we went into this rehearsal room because we we arrived in Memphis and we we're like really excited. It's like, wow, yeah, great, we're gonna you know start recording and then went for a tour of the studio. You know, this is where you guys are gonna be for the next you know whatever. And, and then we went into this rehearsal room, which was in this garage of some guy's house. And it was, I just remember the walls and the ceiling and it was painted or, or like sprayed with that foam stuff that just soaks up every bit of sound in the world. So it was like playing in deep space or something. It was the most unflattering sound you could ever imagine. And I remember like setting up these little amps that we we borrowed or whatever or rented or whatever. They're just like little, little amps and, and my drummer, uh, yak hitting his drum and just going, this sounds like rubbish, you know, like just getting really disenfranchised because his drum kit just sounded like he might have been playing cardboard boxes. Because I mean, yeah, there's a, there's there's definitely a dead sound like which you experience in a lot of rehearsal rooms or or a TV studio or even some recording studios. But this was a dead that I'd never. It was so dead. It was like it, it was like sound going up its own, you know, you know what. So it, it was like. Oh my god! And it just instantly makes you just like you every any bit of excitement just goes. Uh, you just you know you play a note and you go that sounds awful. You know, <laughs> like you sing a note. Ugh. And so, but the but it was very smart because our producer knew that it's like if we made it through this boot camp, you know, like it's just going to be like exhilarating to say the least when we get out of there and put headphones on and he gets a bit of you know reverb going or whatever or gets juicy sounds come cooked up with some microphones and compressors and whatever and so yeah we had to make it through that and to hear our songs under that microscope in that awful light it was yeah it just instantly i hated everything i was like this is all rubbish it's all crap you know but i remember that song in particular he ripped a lot of bits like he ripped it to shreds it was it wasn't the most complex thing or anything but i think we had a lot of stuff that just like the arrangement of it was was probably more for a live thing, you know. Um, and he was trying to make it sound so it was supposed to sound on record, you know. It was like, okay, that bit there's you don't need that there. Let's cut that in half, you know. 
And at first it was, you know, it was like cutting limbs and fingers and stuff. But after a couple of days, I became sort of like, okay, yeah, all right. And I could see what he was doing. I could see that it was it was all for a cause and everything. Um, but for any songwriter that hasn't been through that before, it's quite traumatic, you know. It's like, what are you doing to my songs? But it's really just arrangement. You know, arrangement is songwriting is one thing. You write the song, you write the bulk of it, you got the lyric, you've got the melodies and everything. But back in the day, there would be people that just, you know, men and women that that's all they did was just arrange songs, you know. Someone's written it, but they arrange it. And arranging can just really change a song in a, in a big way to make something that's good into something great, for starters, and great into, like, you know, stupendous. So, yeah. Johnny Diesel and the Injectors connected with producer Terry Menning, and it was a collaboration that proved to be a winner. Menning had previously worked with acts such as Joe Cocker and ZZ Top. His reputation as a producer was unquestionable although originally the album's producer was to be a bona fide superstar. Yeah, well, like for a second we were almost, like we thought we were making the record with um, John Fogarty from Clip Greeners Clearwater. We were, there was phone calls going and, and everything. It was like, wow, that, that's going to be cool. And then we got a call saying, sorry, you can't, you can't do it um, for whatever reasons. You know, it was just like, okay, you know, change plan, plan B. And I'm, I'm really glad, you know, that I made my first record with, with Terry because um, he was just such a nurturing person back then and still is. And, I, yeah, I just learned so much that I still apply today. To this very day, I still apply a lot of things that I learned from that experience because, you know, they say that the lasting impressions and all that. And lucky for me that he, he taught me some really good rudimentary, um, rudimental things that still still apply to any genre for that matter, really. Um, that's, and that's, that's a rare thing, you know. Jimmy Barnes had left Cold Chisel to concentrate on his solo career. It's pretty much a well-known fact that Barnesy and Diesel are brother-in-laws after marrying sisters. Even before they became family, musically they were brothers in arms, with Jimmy taking the band under his wing. On Barnesy's Freight Train Hard Tour, he took Johnny Diesel and the Ejectors as his support act. Once the band had finished their set, Jimmy would take to the stage and he would bring Diesel back out to be the lead guitarist of his own backing band. Diesel would then spend upwards of two hours on stage each night of this highly successful tour. Yeah, look, I mean, Jimmy, he's been a great, uh, yeah, he's provided this kind of uh, nurturing environment for a lot of musicians who have come through his camp and then, you know, gone on to other, other things and stuff. And um, for us, you know, it was, it, was, it was a really good opportunity to play in front of just way bigger numbers than what we would have achieved at that time. And yeah, it got us around the country too and around the world. Um, and, we, you know, we were always able to kind of utilize the logistics of that to our, to our you know, benefit because we were like, well, Jimmy's taking us there. Okay. Um, and then we don't have anything for like four days. Great. Like, okay. Let's do some extra gigs after that. And um, because we're already going to be there sort of thing, you know, uh, riding on the, on the logistics of something that's already has happened is very can be really, really good for a band when they're starting out because it's expensive, you know, getting around and touring really is. And so before we had, you know, things like tour support and stuff, um, record companies used to help bands tour at the beginning. You know, they give them a thing called tour support. And, of course, it was money that they had to pay back. But for a band starting out, it can really make a difference. You know, it's, it's like a catch-22. We need to play in front of people we, we can't afford to. And um, got a record coming out. We need to promote it, but we can't afford, you know, so it, it yeah, so the record company sees all, would see that and go, okay, we'll give you a, a helping hand here to get it 
it's like kindling, you know, it's, it's all it is at the end of the day is when you're trying to make a fire, you can't just throw logs on, you need the kindling first, you know, so that little bit of cash at the beginning kind of gets the, gets the fire crackling away and then the rest, the, the, you know, the fans that become, that start loving the music coming to the shows, they, they provide the, you know, turn it into a bonfire. I think you look on the back of, um, I think it is actually Cry and Shame, the, the single cover, there's 200 and something, 230 or 250 odd dates that are put on there that we did in the space of a year or something. And I always think that people ask me, how did, you know, how did it happen on the first album? I went so big, it was the biggest debut by an Australian artist of all time at that point. And I said, well, you know, I think, you know, the imagination um, was lit on people's minds, but also we played like to almost every woman, man and dog and child or whatever in the country before we released the record. That helps too. <laughs> when Cry and Shame was released by Chrysalis Records in May 1989, it peaked at number 10 on the ARIA single charts and it became one of the band's most loved songs. The recording lineup was Mark Lazotte, vocals and guitar, Bernie Bramon, saxophone and backing vocals, bass guitarist Johnny Dalzell, and drummer John Yak Sherrod. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Crying Shame by Johnny Diesel and the Injectors.
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Diesel for your time, and thanks to Johnny Diesel and the Ejectors for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! I've got some